Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about Duke Xiang of Song. So when I decided to do the episode last week on Duke Huan of Qi, I wasn't planning on making it into a series. But the fact of the matter is that we often talk about Chun Qiu Ba Zhang Guo Qi Xiong. The five hegemons of spring and autumn, and the seven powers of the warring states. While the seven powers of the warring states referred to the major states, the five hegemons actually referred to specific individuals. And Duke Huan of Qi was the first of the five hegemons. So. Maybe I'll to tell you about the others. Certainly, they all had dramatic stories. Well, I say Duke Huan of Qi was the first of the five, but actually, since there is no entirely agreed upon list of the five hegemons, it's also a bit up for debate as to who was the first. Well. Two names appear on every list, and Duke Huan of Qi was one of them. And two other names appear on most lists. So there's typically more controversy concerning who ought to be in the fourth and fifth spots. In last week's episode, before really getting into the career of Duke Huan of Qi, I talked about Duke. Zhuang of Zheng. Early on, during the spring and autumn period, in the last twenty or so years of the eighth century BC, Duke Zhuang of Zheng did much to undermine the central authority of the Zhou Dynasty kings. In so doing, he helped to confirm the basic political situation of the spring and autumn era, in which feudal lords. In command of their own fiefdoms, could do what they please without taking the king all that seriously. So, according to one account, that made Duke Zhuang of Zheng one of the five hegemons. And since he predated Duke Huan of Qi, that would make him the first of the hegemons. But most lists. Do not include Duke Zhuang of Zheng, and we've already said quite a bit about him in the previous episode. So let's move on to the next candidate for the five hegemons. I should note, though, that the protagonist of today's story is also one of these disputed hegemons, not one of the names with secure places on the list, and you'll see why. But his story, at least one major episode from it, is also one of the most memorable tales from the era. Certainly, I remember it from first hearing it as a kid, and it's a story with a moral, a life lesson for us all. This is the story of Duke Xiang of Song. We're not sure when Duke Xiang was born. But he came to the throne of the state of Song 
in 650 BC. The state of Song was located in parts of today's provinces of Henan and Anhui in sort of central eastern China. In the early to mid-7th century BC, the Song grew relatively powerful, but it was never really that powerful. So how did Duke Xiang come to be considered as maybe a hegemon? Well, it had a lot to do with what Duke Huan of Qi did. As we talked about in the previous episode, Duke Huan of Qi had many concubines and so many sons. As he grew older, he recognized, or his chancellor Guan Zhong made sure he recognized, that a succession crisis loomed after his death. Indeed, as we talked about last time, a succession crisis was what ended up happening when Duke Huan died in 643 BC, with the different princes immediately holding on to different wings of the palace as they fought each other, making it impossible to bury their father. Previously, though, when he foresaw something like this might happen, Duke Huan of Qi, presumably at one of the conferences of the great lords that he convened, spoke with Duke Xiang of Song. He and Guan Zhong told Duke Xiang that of all of his sons, Duke Huan had chosen Prince Zhao as the best of the bunch and therefore his successor. But given the likelihood of a power struggle, Prince Zhao was going to need outside support to secure his position. For this reason, Duke Huan said, he was entrusting his son to his good friend, Duke Xiang of Song. And so, when Duke Huan died, and the various princes fought each other in the palace, the one prince who didn't stay and fight was Prince Zhao. Instead, he ran. He ran because, first, he knew that all his brother's knives would be out for him as the actual anointed successor. Second, because he had somewhere to go, the state of Song, whose ruler he knew had promised his father to help to put him on the throne. Back in the state of Qi, after fighting each other for over two months, the princes and their various partisans ultimately settled on supporting Prince Wu Kui, who ascended the throne. But over in Song, Duke Xiang declared his support for Prince Zhao as the rightful heir, and he called other lords for help. In 642 BC, just three months after Prince Wu Kui took power, Duke Xiang led the allied armies of the states of Song, Wei, Cao, and Zhu, and marched on the state of Qi. With a faction within Qi still supporting Prince Zhao, the allied armies defeated Prince Wu Kui's forces. They put Prince Zhao on the throne, making him Duke Xiao of Qi, and 
they led Wukui outside to be hanged. After this experience of leading an alliance of lords, Duke Xiang got a taste for leadership. He decided that by putting Duke Huan's son on the throne in the state of Qi, he, Duke Xiang of Song, ought to become the next hegemon. He called a conference of the great lords, just as Duke Huan of Qi had once done, to solidify his position among the peers of the realm. And following Duke Huan's example, Duke Xiang of Song came to his own conference without a military escort. This turned out to be a mistake. He had not done enough, had not performed the feats that Duke Huan once performed in suppressing the barbarians to earn the respect of the other lords. So they couldn't help but to whisper among themselves, what gave this Duke Xiang the right to start strutting around like he was their leader? And among the invitees to the conference was King Cheng of Chu. Remember, the state of Chu in the south was the one that called its ruler a king, making him an apparent equal to the Zhou king, even while nominally paying obeisance to the Zhou king. So King Cheng of Chu came to the conference. But he brought an army, and he ordered his soldiers to seize Duke Xiang of Song, taking him prisoner and utterly humiliating him in front of the other lords. Then he marched Duke Xiang with his army over to attack the state of Song. Before the true army could arrive, the shocking news had reached the state of Song that its duke had been taken prisoner. At this time, Duke Xiang's brother, Prince Mu Yi, stepped in to take charge. Prince Mu Yi was wise, wiser than his brother, and so the people of Song in this moment of crisis followed him and did as he instructed. As the true army marched, to the gates of Song, King Cheng of Chu paraded his prisoner, Duke Xiang, to show the Song troops that their leader had already been taken and that they might as well surrender. The top Song minister, Gong Sun Gu, walked up atop the city walls and answered King Cheng of Chu. That's fine, he said, because we already got ourselves a new duke. And his name is Mu Yi. King Cheng answered, Well, that can't be right. Your duke is right here, and he's not dead. So how can you have a new one? Gong Sun Gu answered, No, by allowing himself to be captured, Duke Xiang already made himself unfit to rule. Even if we got him back, we wouldn't let him back on the throne. Outraged, King Cheng of Chu ordered his troops to attack. But in the city, Prince Mu Yi and Gong Sun Gu had already had their defenses well organized. So after three days of fighting, the Chu lost quite a few soldiers, but gained nothing. King Cheng wanted to kill Duke Xiang. But his advisors pointed out that if the man 
was no longer in charge of anything, then what was the point of killing him? King Cheng then gave Duke Xiang to the state of Lu, who subsequently released him. Duke Xiang went back to his country, the Song, expecting now to be no more than a private citizen. But his brother, Prince Mu Yi, welcomed him back and vacated the throne for him, explaining that it had all been a ploy to trick the king of Chu into releasing him. So Duke Xiang took power again in the state of Song. But perhaps Prince Mu Yi shouldn't have been so kind, as we shall see. While Duke Xiang stood humiliated, and while all the other lords were afraid of the king of Chu, the duke of the state of Zheng suggested that the king of Chu ought to be the new hegemon. Now that Duke Xiang was back in power in the Song, he was terribly upset and eagerly sought an opportunity to avenge his own dishonor. So now he launched a war against the state of Zheng. The Zheng, meanwhile, being newly allied with the Chu, called the king of Chu for help. And so, pretty soon, the forces of the Song were directly facing the forces of the Chu. Which was just as well, since Duke Xiang was really angry at the Chu in the first place, not the Zheng. So in November 638 BC, the armies of the Song and the Chu met at the river Hong. The Song army held onto North Bank, while the Chu army was on the South Bank. Meanwhile, though, Duke Xiang had decided that what distinguished him, the lord of a central Chinese state, from the semi-barbarian Chu, was his morality. Indeed, he had ordered a massive new banner to be raised, with the characters for justice sewn on it. The Chu army might be larger and better trained and better equipped, Duke Xiang declared. But the Song side possessed superior justice, and the just would always win out against the unjust. Now the Chu army attacking began to ford the river. His minister, Gong Sun Gu, and his brother, Prince Mu Yi, at this time both advised Duke Xiang with the military principle later crystallized in Sun Tzu's Art of War. When the enemy's army is halfway across the river, that is when you should attack. But Duke Xiang refused. To attack an enemy before he was ready to fight would not be justice, would not be honorable, he said. So he waited until the true forces had all safely crossed the river. His advisors said to him, Okay, they have crossed the river, but they have not yet reformed their lines. We can attack now. Duke Xiang again refused. To attack now would not be justice. It would not be honorable, he said. 
Finally, the true soldiers reformed their lines and got their weapons ready, and they were ready to do battle. Then, Duke Xiang ordered his army to fight. The outcome was, as you'd expect, the Chu won a resounding victory. The Song suffered a catastrophic defeat, and surviving soldiers ran for their lives back to their country. Duke Xiang had been particularly kind to his personal bodyguards, and so they fought hard to protect him. Even so, Duke Xiang was wounded multiple times. One arrow severed the tendon in his knee, so that he could no longer stand. At the cost of some of their own lives, his officers managed to get him out and get him back to the Song. But a few months later, in the summer of 637 BC, Duke Xiang of Song ultimately died of his wounds. Thus ended his quest to become a great hegemon of the spring and autumn. Posterity came to remember Duke Xiang of Song as a foolish man, a man who allowed some conceit of morality to get in the way of practical purpose and good sense. Certainly that was the way the story was framed to me when I first heard it as a child. When you're in the middle of fighting a war, and your enemy exposes his weakness to you, no, you don't let your sense of honor get in the way. You take advantage of the situation. There is no dishonor in doing so when you're faced with something as serious as war. At least one historian, though, has argued to rehabilitate Duke Xiang's reputation. Warfare in spring and autumn China, he argued, was an aristocratic affair, involving relatively small numbers of soldiers and high-born officers. It was basically a large-scale duel. Before wars evolved into conflicts between mass armies. If so, then it was an affair of honor. And affairs of honor were always bound by strict codes of conduct. Choose your weapons, choose your seconds, back to back, walk ten paces, turn, and fire. Just like Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. And so Duke Xiang of Song was merely standing up for tradition and living by the code of honor. Well, There might be something to that, but I am not convinced. I would note that Duke Xiang's brother, Mu Yi, and his advisor, Gong Sun Gu, both told him to attack while the Chu army was halfway across the river. They were surely as well versed in the aristocratic codes of the time as their duke. And history tells us they were both honorable men. So, if Duke Xiang was trying to uphold some kind of ethical tradition, then it would seem that even by this time, by 638 BC, 
the tradition was fading away. His contemporaries already felt no need to observe the ancient code. Duke Xiang then would be like a man in the 21st century insisting on living by ideas from, say, the 1950s. Hardly practical or wise. And that is why Duke Xiang of Song's place among the five hegemons is at best disputed, and in my opinion, he really ought not to be included. On that note, this has been MODG. Thank you for listening.